Hey everybody, you're listening to Dead Ideas, the podcast of extinct thoughts and practices. Today we're back with another segment of Public Domain Theater 3000, where we read public domain works because we can, and no one can sue us for it. Uh, This time we're working with our ginormous stone circles theme. We're going to go with, we did, we did a lot of talk about the Neolithic period of Britain, which you don't usually get to hear too much in terms of culture and what it was really like to live there uh, when you talk hear about Stonehenge. But the Neolithic people were the ones who originally built it. So we went uh, deep into that, and we're going to do something today related to that. Uh, we found an article, an article from 1837 called Savage Man which basically is going to give us a little peek into what people in 1837 were kind of thinking about prehistoric people. It's also, and this is going to be a big feature of today, pre-PC. There's probably going to be some quite racist undertones, probably some quite racist overtones coming out in this. And uh, we at this podcast definitely do not condone that, of course. We are not in any way saying, like, this is great. It's not. But uh, it's a challenge to kind of get under the skin of what people were thinking at that time. Because, of course, most of our species history, very racist. Still racist today. But it was even more on the outside at the time. And so it's kind of like uh, your grandmother at the family gathering who just makes these uncomfortable comments. And it's just like, what? (laughs) That's what it was like back then. Uh, So we'll get a little peek into that today. Uh, That's what we're going to be doing for Public Domain Theater today. Uh, Before we get into that, I just wanted to make a little, like, kind of capstone to our Stonehenge series. People, of course, have always marveled about how the, this monument, Stonehenge, like, how could people have possibly have built it without modern technology? But as we saw in the series, actually there's a lot of studies that kind of show, ah, you could totally do it. It's not even that hard. Um, and even Andre, Andre did a stone on his own, and it wasn't even that hard as it sounded. So that all of that is kind of a, may seem a little bit deflationary, but in fact, there's still a lot to really marvel about uh, regarding Stonehenge. And what really gets me is, okay, Stone Age people had the the technology and the know-how to be able to do this, but how did they pass it on from generation to generation? That's what gets me. Because as we heard in the series, there were no professional engineers wandering around Britain putting up monuments for this chieftain and that chieftain. Everybody was basically just, you know, your average farmer or herder or, you know, something of that nature, and just some people had some extra skills. So... Given that you weren't just building a Stonehenge all the time, how do you keep that knowledge alive? How do you pass that on? What were the hymns or the poems or the songs or something that allowed you to pass from parent to child that knowledge that would let you keep alive the the geometry and the math that was needed in order to uh, set something up like that? That's what really gets me. Not that they couldn't do it with the size of those stones, without modern technology, but that they could keep that knowledge alive. That's what really gets me. That's pretty interesting. So anyway, just an extra little thought to cap off 
that bit there. Now let's get to our main course for today. So as I said, we have an article called Savage Man. This is from 1873 from Century Magazine. And uh, this is by an author that's only listed in Century Magazine by the initials N-A-H. And I don't know why. One of the weird things about looking back in a lot of this, um, these magazines from public domain times, uh, so pre-1922 basically, uh, is a lot of times you get these compendiums or like digests that don't even give authors. In this case, at least they give the initials. I don't know. Who is this? I have no idea who this was. Anyway, so this is going to be a view of how people in 1873, at least one person in 1873, saw prehistoric people. And like I said before, brace yourselves, there's, there's probably going to be some fairly racist overtones coming through here. Oh, and also, um, one of the, part of the concept here is that I skim these articles to kind of, you know, select them, but I try not to read them deeply. So really, this is going to be my first time encountering this in any meaningful way. And so you're coming along with me on this journey. Hopefully we won't completely <laughs> go into the weeds of racism here but probably will. All right, so let's get started. So, Savage Man. All right, so he begins, Alone of all created beings, unfettered by necessities of soil and climate, man, and man is capitalized here for some reason. That's kind of interesting. Man successfully maintains his existence in every quarter of the globe, under the burning sun of the tropics and in the ice-clad regions round the poles, where the last grasses mark on the edge of the perpetual snow, the limits of expiring vegetation, as in countries where all nature teems with an exuberant vitality, man subsists and multiplies. The influence of climate upon man seems indeed to be very small and insignificant, and it is questionable if we can ascribe to this cause even the comparatively trivial distinctions which separate the different races of mankind. Oh, here we go already. <laughs> First of all, celebration of man. Man is the awesomest animal on the planet, apparently. Um, but already, we're already talking about only probably certain kinds of men. Let's see where he goes with this. And not to, not to mention that man here means humans, but also pretty much means males at this time, with females being an, kind of an afterthought. Again, not a PC age to be looking back on. Okay. The unity of the human race, if not capable of direct and absolute proof, I don't know what that's going to be about, nevertheless has an enormous balance of evidence in its favor. Comparative anatomy shows that the utmost physical differences amongst men are only such as relate to the possession of a more or less oval head, a nose more or less flattened, jaws more or less projecting, and a greater or smaller quantity of coloring matter in the skin. Uh, these are the only differences in men? Yeah, the differences between races I think he's talking about. This last mentioned difference is so conspicuous, even to common observation, that the various tribes of men have been often, on this account, grouped under four great divisions, the white, yellow, red, and black races. Here we go. Though these divisions cannot be considered as being of scientific value, 
Huh. At least he admits that. Nevertheless, the color of the skin is often associated with other peculiarities of greater weight and importance. The white races may, without conceit, regard themselves as being the the highest type of humanity as we see it today. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, race is actually kind of a socially created category, not really very justifiable biologically. Um, the DNA differences are for different races are swamped by how much that we have in common. It's just so minor. It just so happens that one of the ones that does differ, like skin color, is on the outside and just very obvious to us by the eyes. So anyway, so let's hear how Mr. NAH thinks that the white race is by far the most amazing of all. Okay. Their preeminence is attested no less by their straight and regular features, which of course must mean superior if you have straight features and regular, and their superior muscular strength and endurance. Hmm. Then by their higher intelligence and refinement, and though beauty of form and lineaments, even according to our standard, is not wanting amongst other races, still it attains its highest development as the expression of the supreme Caucasian mind. <laughs> okay, so I think that gives us a pretty good preview of what kind of tone the rest of this article is going to have. <laughs> Anybody who's easily offended can probably just skip to our next episode after this. But the rest of you, come along, let's find out what it was like to be a racist in the 19th century. Okay, let's go. The characteristics of the yellow races find their most marked expression in the Chinese, stationary for the last 30 centuries alike in their civilization and their physical organization. State like stationary like stagnant or stationary like China didn't I don't know. <laughs> With a yellow or tawny skin, we find associated a broad head and angular face, oblique almond-shaped eyes, straight hair, and a scanty beard. To these merely external characters, mental peculiarities, little less marked in their nature, ally themselves, and the typical Mongolians, quote-unquote, can hardly be confounded with any other people upon the earth. Distinct as they are, however, there is good reason for believing that the so-called red races are a mere offshoot and modification of them, not distinct as to origin, and only altered by long separation from the parent stock and by constant battling with dissimilar conditions of life and external surroundings. Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder if 1873 they already had the theory that Native Americans came across the uh, Bering Strait yet at this time, like from Asia. I wonder if that's what he's drawing on, or if it's more just based on similarity of features. I don't know. The North American Indian is a Mongolian with a brownish-red or copper-colored skin and his high cheekbones and low and narrow forehead and prominent features can only be looked upon as characters of secondary, <laughs> secondary importance. Uh -huh. The so-called, I think secondary there means it's the differences from the Asians are less prominent than their similarities to Asians. At first I thought secondary to whites, but I don't think that's what he means. Anyway, the so-called black races are not all black, for if any scientific classification of the human race is to be adopted, we must place side by side with the Negro, 
certain other tribes whose color is much lighter, whilst the black fellows of Australia must find a position elsewhere. However, the Negro may be taken as typical of the black races or Ethiopians, all of which are distinguished by their long and narrow skulls, crisp and curly hair, projecting jaws, and thick lips. I find it's interesting that what his topic is going to be is prehistoric men, and he decides to start out by giving this typology of different races of, of the human species, as if that was the most important thing to start with. Again, just a very different perspective than we would have today. As to the origin of these different races of man, science can as yet give us no information. We do not know the springs and causes of the striking differences which distinguish the peoples of different parts of the earth, and we are absolutely ignorant as to the time when these differences were produced. Man, however, as a social animal, is distinguished as much by his relations with his fellow man as by his merely physical peculiarities, and many writers have endeavored, with more or less success, to unravel the complexities of human life and to investigate the laws which bind human beings into societies. There is little agreement upon this subject, but four phases of social life may be more or less clearly distinguished as existing at the present day. First, we have the truly savage life, in which man supports himself by the chase alone, and each family is an isolated and independent whole. That's interesting, the chase alone. So, meat is what counts here, the hunter part of hunter-gatherer, not the gatherer part in this author's mind. Secondly, we have the nomadic life, in which each man lives upon his flocks, himself and his herds alike wandering and migratory. Thirdly, we have the genuine agricultural life, in which man supports himself on the fruits of the earth, tilling the soil and necessarily compelled to remain in one place and to provide himself with a permanent habitation. Lastly, we have the life of a people or nation, in the modern sense of the term, in which the conditions of existence attain their highest complexity, and each individual is more or less dependent for the satisfaction of his wants upon his fellows. The hunter stage of civilization is undoubtedly a very ancient one, and it is one which still exists in many races at the present day. Apart from the necessities of existence, the instinct of sport is one which is very deeply implanted in man, and there are many now alive who would probably travel thousands of miles for the pleasure of hunting a mastodon or a megatherium. Hmm. A uh, man in all stages of his career has been at heart a hunter, and the conditions of life in various parts of the world are still sufficiently elastic to allow of existence being maintained by the chase alone. Hunter tribes, however, never attain to any high degree of civilization, and this phase of civilization is not compatible with anything but a thin and sparse population and extensive tracts of unsettled land. Now, in uh, social sciences, civilization technically refers to civil life, meaning, you know, urbanized life. It should, really should be read as urban civilization. But I get the feeling that here and at this time, civilization means not just that, but also the superiority complex of um, peoples like ours who live in, you know, urban conditions. So, yeah, I think it's fair to read a little bit of uh, superiority into that word civilization in this article. It were well, also, if man had always been content with hunting the brute creation, 
but there are too many instances, even at the present day, in which man is both the hunter and the hunted. The Fijians, for example, look upon their fellow men so entirely in the light of animals to be hunted that a human being is simply known by the name of long pig to distinguish him readily and completely from short pig, that is to say, from genuine pig. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, both alike are killed and eaten, and the Fijian mind recognizes no perceptible difference save in the length of the carcass. So he seems to be referring to some kind of cannibalism practice, which I'm not sure if that's uh, exactly accurate for Fijians, but there are plenty of cultures in the South Pacific and Southeast Asian islands area that, that did practice that. But here we get no insight into like what it meant to them. Uh, it just makes them sound like savages. So that's kind of interesting. Both alike are killed and eaten and the Fijian mind recognizes no perceptible difference save in the length of the carcass. In this connection, however, we may, to some extent, exonerate these singular islanders from the odium of another heavy charge, which is burned brought against them, namely, that they put their aged to death. The charge is unfortunately true, but the motives which lead to this execrable practice are not so bad as might as first sight appear. Thus, according to Sir John Lubbock, the killing of the aged is not only caused by their notions of religion, but is usually accepted with positive joy by the sufferers themselves. The Fijians believe that, as they die, such will be their condition in another world. Hence, they greatly desire to escape extreme infirmity, for the way to the future home is, in their belief, long and toilsome, and none but the strong could possibly surmount its dangers." As soon, therefore, as a man feels the approach of old age, he generally notifies his children that it is time for him to die, or, if he neglects to do so, a family consultation is held, and the children take the matter into their own hands. It really would appear, however, that in so doing the children are actuated by a regard for what they imagine to be the best interests of their parents, so that we must not place this practice side by side with the much more atrocious habit of cannibalism. Well, that's interesting. So there he does give at least some insight into at least some clue that he's trying to take their perspective and see it from their eyes. Um, now, it would be interesting to see if he's accurate in that or not. That would be a very interesting thing to look up. But at least he's making an effort here to understand the the reasons within their own culture for practices that look as odd from his perspective. Hmm, interesting. After the hunting instinct, no impulse perhaps more strongly urges savage man than that of migration. Always migratory, even in his highest phases of civilization, man has never so plainly exhibited his restless habits in, as in his nomadic or pastoral condition. His condition of life presupposes two things. In the first place, a pastoral life is not possible to any race of men unacquainted with the art of domesticating animals, and the hunter spirit is not favorable to the acquirement of this art. Hmm, I'm not sure why. In the second place, a pastoral life cannot be carried out by a whole people, except in thinly populated regions where there is ample space of level and grassy land, 
and plenty of room for migration whenever fodder or water may become scarce. Most people, we should presume, are familiar with Charles Kingsley's Elton Locke. Uh, I'm definitely not familiar with that, but people at the time may have been. But we may be excused for quoting on account of its beauty a passage relating to the migration of a primitive tribe of men. In the delirium of fever, the tailor poet imagines himself to be a child upon a woman's bosom, lulled to sleep by the noise of wheels crushing slowly through the meadows of tall marigolds and asters. Orchises, Orchises? O-R-C-H-I-S-E-S. Uh, maybe some kind of flower. Orchises and fragrant lilies. Day after day and week after week, he slept and woke and slept again. And here we have quotes. In the lazy bullock wagon among herds of gray cattle guarded by huge lop-eared mastiffs, among shaggy white horses, heavy-horned sheep and silky goats, among tall bare-limbed men with stone axes on their shoulders and horn bows at their backs. Westward, through the boundless steppes, whither or why we know not, but that the All-Father had sent us forth, and behind us the rosy snow-peaks died into ghastly gray, lower and lower, as every evening came, and before us the plains spread infinite, with gleaming salt lakes and ever-fresh tribes of gaudy flowers. Behind us dark lines of living beings streamed down the mountain slopes, Around us dark lines crawled along the plains, all westward, westward ever. The tribes of the holy mountain poured out like water to replenish the earth and subdue it. Lava streams from the crater of that great soul volcano, titan babies, dumb angels of God, bearing with them in their unconscious pregnancy the law, the freedom, the science, the poetry, the Christianity of Europe and the world. What? <laughs> okay, I was, I was with them until that. Uh, okay, uh, why is that so primordial? I don't know. Okay, continuing, and this is still in quotes here. Westward ever, who could stand against us? We met the wild asses on the steppe and tamed them and made them our slaves. We slew the bison herds and swam broad rivers on their skins. The python snake lay across our path. The wolves and wild dogs snarled at us out of their coverts. We slew them and went on. Oh, what? <laughs> well, I guess they were snarling at them. I was going to say, uh, this felt like we were so in tune with nature here. And then it's like, yeah, we killed them. <laughs> uh, but that's actually... As we pointed out in the uh, Stone Circles series, that was a little bit more like the ancient attitude toward nature. They respected and feared nature, but weren't necessarily a kind of a new agey, uh, perfectly in tune with it, one with nature kind of an idea. Yep, uh, wild dogs snarl at us and we kill them. Okay, continuing. The forest rose in black tangled barriers. We hewed our way through them and went on. Strange giant tribes met us, and eagle-visaged hordes, fierce and foolish, we smote them hip and thigh, and went on westward ever. And that's where the end quote is. Hmm. Well, I mean, that gave me a few gags, but, uh, um, you know, that was actually beautifully written, and that's something I kind of miss in today's writing. Yeah. All right, so continuing... 
uh, on from NAH here. He continues, starting from the great mountain chains which form the nucleus of Asia, the primitive races of mankind slowly spread themselves in ever-widening circles of migration eastward, westward, and southward. Few races are without their traditions of early migrations. By the way, this apparently looks seems like an out-of-Asia theory that he's working with rather than out of Africa. That's interesting. I wonder I wonder what point in anthropology did the out of Africa theory become the dominant one? Hmm, interesting. Few races are without their traditions of early migrations, and in many cases there can be little question but that these traditions are founded upon fact. The Semitic races, more perhaps than any other, seem to have retained their original restlessness and the modern Bedouins are the type of a nomadic people. I think he means like the archetype or paradigm. Mounted on their untiring horses, their scanty household goods borne by the patient camels, they traverse vast stretches of arid desert, and they appear to be without the faculty of ever remaining for any length of time in a single locality. The modern Chinese are singularly stationary, disinclined to accept any innovation. <laughs> okay, uh, till, uh, this, is, this is 1873, so this is before the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, okay, uh, disinclined to accept any in innovation and extraordinarily reluctant to change their place of abode. But their near relatives, the Tartars, which I, I believe he's referring to the Mongolians and other steppe peoples of, of that area, are as unstable and restless as quicksilver, and the Chinese themselves preserve traditions of a time when they too had not acquired the respectable conservatism and unwillingness to change by which they are at present characterized. So this is really interesting because um, China really became well known to the West at a time when it wasn't it it wasn't in its highest uh, point of ascendancy, but for most of recorded history. China was far more advanced scientifically than the West was. The West was rel a relative backwater compared to China for most of recorded history. But nevertheless, this is the view that comes through in 1873. Another race, which also had as its primitive starting place the Great Plateau of Central Asia, is that of the Finns. Reduced at the present day to mere isolated remnants of their former power, the Finnish races must, at one period of the world's history, have enjoyed a much greater extension than they can boast of now. That does seem to make sense to me because I believe uh, the Finnish language is unrelated to any um, any European language around it. It's kind of an interesting anomaly. In times long preceding the arrival of the German and Slavic races in the north of Europe, the Finns and Laplanders had occupied a great portion of what is now Russia. When the Teutonic races invaded northern Europe, they found the ground already occupied by barbarous and migratory hordes of Finns and Ugrians, and it is the extirpation of these by a race of happier destinies that is celebrated in the early poems of the Skalds. Uh, skalds being uh, bards or poets of um, sort of Norwegian and Germanic peoples, I believe. At this period, the Finns dwelt in wild mountainous regions or in the pathless forests which then covered so much of Europe, and their mode of life must have been sufficiently precarious and wretched. 
Such accounts as we possess of them, it must be remembered, are those of their enemies and conquerors, and are therefore probably more unfavorable than the actual facts would warrant. They are described as being clothed with the skins of wild beasts, and as uttering sounds more like the cries of animals than the speech of human beings. Described by who? <laughs> um, they dwelt in caves and clefts of the rocks, whence they issued nightly in marauding bands to perpetuate the deeds of blood. <laughs> is this Okay, but this is very much that kind of idea of like the totally instinct-driven, violent, bloody, red in tooth and claw prone of man here. Many migratory races have left traces of their religious beliefs, social habits, or superstitions in the regions which they traversed or permanently occupied. And many of these traces are of such a similar character in their most remote portions of the earth as to prove an original community of origin for these races. Forests and woods seem to have always been regarded by ancient races with a species of sacred reverence and fear, and in passing through their shady recesses, many ancient tribes seem to have propitiated evil spirits and malignant influences by nightly expiations, in which fire played a principal part. These traditions and mystic rites have left no permanent evidence of their existence, but all over the world we find traces of primeval habits and beliefs in the so-called megalithic monuments, uh, such as Stonehenge, by the way, megalithic monuments. Uh, not just stone circles, but all kinds of um, huge stone or earthwork monuments there. Everywhere we meet with stone circles, dolmens, and standing stones, many of which are of astonishing dimensions, whilst all excite our admiration and interest by the antiquity of their origin and the mystery of their uses. Looking into, and this is in quotes, the dark, backward, and abysm of time, end quote, we find no evidence by which we can certainly identify the makers of these singular structures, and antiquaries have vainly puzzled themselves in attempts to elucidate the objects for which they are constructed. We saw many of those attempts to do so in our last episode, some of which were rather interesting. The most probable view, and this would be good, uh, let's see what in 1873 they thought was the most probable view of all those. The most probable view is that they are burial places for the dead. Hmm, that's actually fairly reasonable. But they may possibly, in some cases at any rate, be memorial monuments of great occurrences, or they may have been connected with the rites of a lost religion. Whatever their nature may be, the similarity which they exhibit in different regions of the world is a most striking fact. In Europe, Syria, Arabia, and India, we meet commonly with circles of rough upright stones, often of great size, and commonly known as druidical circles. Uh, the bit about the dru druidical circles is interesting. At this time in history, I think they hadn't discredited yet the idea that druids had built Stonehenge. I think, if I remember right, that only came with uh, more advanced dating of, of stones based on I don't know if it was radiocarbon dating, that doesn't seem right, but some kind of uh, using the, the stone material itself to do the dating. So anyway, Druids did not build Stonehenge, but let's go on. In some cases, as in the circle of Northung in India, the stone circle is combined with dolmens, that is, with structures composed of two or three upright stones supporting a massive horizontal slab in the manner of a table. 
In the same way, standing stones, or menhirs, are found nearly all over the world, and they are probably to be regarded as being the tombstones of eminent warriors, hunters, or chiefs among the prehistoric races. The subject of the superstitions and religious observances of the ancient peoples of the earth is far too wide and obscure to be entered upon here. We may, however, draw attention to two points of interest, namely, the prevalence of an exaggerated form of hero worship among various ancient races and some modern savages, and the connection which has subsisted between some forms of religious belief, if such a name could fairly be applied to the degrading, degrading superstitions in question, <laughs> okay, again, a little bit of ethnocentrism going on there, and a more or less chronic state of war. As regards the first point, it is curious to note the tendency of the human mind in certain phases of civilization to elevate distinguished individuals into demigods or divine beings. In some cases, it is not even necessary for an individual to have been especially eminent in any way, and it is sufficient that he should have died some time ago. Some religions consist, in fact, to a greater or less extent in the worship of ancestors. Idols, indeed, usually have the human form, and idolatry is nearly related to the worship of our forefathers. The Greeks and Romans, the Chaldeans, and the ancient Egyptians all deified their distinguished dead, in many cases placing statues of them in their temples and paying to them divine honors. Coming to modern times, the worship of humanity is quite common among the Polynesians. The worship of a great chief seems to them quite as natural as the worship of an idol. Such deified individuals are known among them as Atoas, and they pay the same honors to them as to their gods. Sometimes the Atoas are regarded as immortal, or at any rate as incapable of dying a natural death, and the same belief is held as regards to the great Lama of Tibet. Hmm? Uh, not sure that's accurate, unless he means not dying a natural death, like reincarnation counts as that. Not sure quite what his reasoning is there. The Polynesians also, and perhaps naturally, regarded Captain Cook as a supernatural being. Captain Cook being uh, an explorer that you know came to Polynesia, uh, and was really quite a dick to them, if I recall correctly. Um, but we'll let that be bygones right now. And though such a notion may not seem compatible with their subsequently killing him, because he was a dick to them, of course, <laughs> they ultimately assigned him a place amongst their deities. And that actually might possibly... I could see how that could have been true, because one of the things that I've learned about pagan religions of various parts of the world is unlike the Abrahamic traditions in the West, it's not it's more about sort of power and sacredness that you are respecting and not necessarily about not necessarily having benevolence or goodness as a qualifying characteristic of being divine which is something that is very controversial even today in Japan uh, there's a big controversy where the prime minister of Japan will often go to a Shinto shrine where generals and admirals from World War II who committed war atrocities are enshrined and there it looks like you're worshiping them really you're just paying respect to their sacredness sort of if that makes sense again 
it's a task of ours to kind of look at it from the other culture's perspective. So what this author is saying about uh, quote-unquote savage races um, may not be too far off the mark. <clears throat> okay, continuing. A chronic state of warfare seems to be the normal and natural condition of things among savage races. Now, by that, I'm guessing that he's referring, he has in mind that red and toothed claw kind of image of the gross, barbaric, savage person. Um, but in fact, from, where, from my reading, it may be somewhat true, and, but not because primitive man was more violent than us, but rather because there weren't strong governments to sign and enforce peace treaties. Instead, uh, any person whose temper f you know, flew off in the moment could ignite an old like family feud with, or with another family or with another village, and then you'd be on to you know, violent conflict again. So it was harder to maintain a peace rather than just the sheer fact of being like more prone to violence or something. Nevertheless, it gets to the same uh, result in the end, as the, this author is saying, a chronic state of warfare. Every man's hand is against his neighbor, and security of life and property is a thing unknown. Hence, savage life is filled with suspicion and hatred, and is attended with constant vicissitudes. A great king becomes a shepherd, or the chances of war raise a simple hunter to a throne. The following account by Caffrey, as related to a missionary, portrays but too faithfully the uncertainty of savage existence, and carries with it the guarantee of its truth in its touching simplicity and directness. Sitting on the ruins of his native village, guarding the flocks which, perhaps, had once been his own, he thus recapitulated his woes. Quote, My eyes have seen this desolation. Here lived the chief of many men. He governed them as a king. His flocks, numerous as the clouds which rest upon the mountains, spread themselves afar over hill and plain. One day they told him of enemies who were advancing and of approaching danger. He counted his warriors and smiled. These rested upon their spears and scoffed at the cowardice of the tribes who had taken flight before they were invaded. We will cut them in pieces, they said, and hang their bucklers on the posts of our huts. Our race is a race of warriors. When did our fathers ever submit? Or who has seen them give back in battle? So they sang and danced the dance of war. But all at once, in the night, their shouts died away. Black masses rolled along the hills. The enemy approached. From the bosom of the plain rose clouds, the smoke of burning villages. Then it was like a tempest in the heart of the great chief. His warriors seized their spears and dashed forward as in hunting the antelope. The shock of the combatants was like thunder, and their spears were like a forest agitated by a storm. In approaching us, the invaders set up a cry of death. Alas, it was a cry of victory, and was answered with frightful groans. In a few moments, hundreds lay upon the plain. The survivors fled toward the town where the conquerors followed them with the roars of lions. They plundered and burnt the houses, massacred the women and old men, and threw the children in the flames. The sun went down upon this scene of destruction, but they, weary of slaughter, satiated with the palpitating flesh of sheep and oxen, drunk with blood, danced and sang until the break of day. Then boys and young girls, destined for slavery, loaded like beasts with the property of their murdered parents, were driven off with blows. 
Before leaving, the conqueror sought amongst the corpses for all that might possibly survive. The wounded exhausted by loss of blood, the aged exhausted by length of days, infants wailing on the bosoms of their mothers lying stiff in death. All were heaped up in an enclosure without an outlet, and the last groans of a people were smothered in fire and smoke. Then the lions came out of their dens, attracted by the scent of so great a feast. The hyenas and jackals left their posts of observation in broad daylight, and the vultures assembled from all the quarters of heaven to claim their share in this immense banquet of human flesh. Look at this dust which fills the hollow of my hand, and which my breath scatters far away. It is that of my parents and brothers. It is all that remains of the great chief. End quote. Hmm. Never did war among either savage or civilized peoples assume so sinister an aspect as when it was carried on under the guise of religion to furnish those human banquets which some peoples have thought it necessary to lay before their gods. That the gods were hungry was the cause of wars among many ancient races, but notably so among the Mexicans. The object of wars among the Aztecs was far less territorial or personal aggrandizement than the procuring of human victims to place before their deities. Hmm. So this is interesting. So he goes straight from just a story of outright savagery, uh, violent, you know, excess, into religion being the cause of violence in many cases. Um, so that in it, that that in itself is making a connection there that kind of sort of manufactured, I would say. But also, then he goes the colonialist route and starts lumping in the Aztecs with the savages, savage peoples, I guess, which is not surprising to me in 1873, but, I mean, I'm just saying, the Aztecs were actually the, the prime example of civilization in the Americas. Um, if it weren't for diseases, the Aztecs and the other Native Americans wouldn't nearly have been so easy for the Europeans to conquer. And really, they had quite a high development of urbanization at the time that they were that the the Americans were discovered by Europeans. So it's odd to call them savages, but of course their religion was very alien to the Europeans. And yes, it did involve you know human sacrifices, and it involved raids to get captives to sacrifice. So that much, at least, is accurate. But the slant and coloration that it's being given here, very interesting. The object of wars among the Aztecs was far less territorial or personal aggrandizement than the procuring of human victims to place before their deities. More than 2,000 of such victims, upon a moderate estimate, were annually sacrificed in the Mexican temples, and in some years more than a 100 thousand human beings are believed to have perished in this manner. Now, from the Aztecs' perspective, this was a duty where something they had to do in order to protect the entire human race, because according to their religion, it was the return of sacred blood to the gods that strengthened the gods enough that the gods could keep the cosmos from falling apart. So, from the Aztecs' cultural perspective, they were doing the rest of the human race a favor by keeping the cosmos intact, basically. So they were the good guys in their perspective, in their eyes. So anyway, 
They also had a yearly sacrifice to one of their idols, in which the victim was a beautiful youth who was worshipped as a god for a whole year before he was killed. The following Sanskrit legend shows traces of a similar custom among the ancient inhabitants of India. Okay, so making a jarring transition here from all the way over to India, but okay. At the time when the austere Visvamitra, prophet of Indra, retired to the shady solitude of the forests of Pochkara and delivered over his soul to meditation and his body to the most severe penances, the king Harishchandra obtained the favor of the gods and was blessed with a son who received the name of Rohita. When this only son was of age to put on the garb of war, Varuna, the Uranus of the Pelasgians, uh, that's in parentheses there, Uranus was a Greek god, Pelasgians was a sort of proto-Greek kind of tribe, Varuna demanded from Harishchandra that he should be offered up to him as a solemn sacrifice. The king, after long hesitation, addressed Rohita and said to him, My son, Varuna gave you to me, and now he demands that I should sacrifice you to him. Submit yourself to his will. But the youth refused, and seizing his bow and arrows, escaped to the forest, where he lived in safety. And Varuna stretched forth his hand upon Harishchandra, and overwhelmed him with sickness and infirmities. Rohita, upon learning this, would have left his refuge and have returned to his father's house, there to undergo his fate. But at every attempt, the god Indra, under one form or another, barred his way and drove him back into the forest. At last, he one day met a holy man, Ajigarta, son of Suyavasa, the father of three sons. And the prince said to him, I will give you a hundred head of cattle for one of your sons, whose life shall stand for mine. Uh, that's an indecent proposal, if I ever heard one. The father embraced his eldest son and said, It must not be this one. Nor this one, said the mother, embracing the youngest. But the father and mother consented to give up Kunasefa, their second son. Oh, the middle child always gets shafted. Rohita gave the promised cattle, left the forest with his captive, and brought him before the Raja, saying, Here, my father, is my ransom. He will die for me. The Raja consulted the oracle of Varuna, and the oracle consented willingly to the change. Kunasefa was consequently ordered to be sacrificed that very day. When the victim had been brought forth, no one could be found to bind him to the sacrificial post. Then said Ajigarta, the father of Kunasefa, I will do this duty for another hundred head of cattle. Oh, this guy's a real businessman. Oh my god, he's definitely just out for profit here, giving up his second son to be killed, and he's bargaining over the number of cattle. <laughs> God. Okay. This offer was accepted, and the father bound his son. But when he had been thus secured to the post of sacrifice, no one could be found to kill him. Then said Ajigarta, the father of Kunasefa, For another hundred head of cattle I will kill him. <laughs> okay. Upon receiving these also, he began to sharpen his dagger. Then thought Kunasefa that he would, at last resort, invoke the aid of the gods, and he called upon Indra, as the most powerful and most compassionate of the immortals, and at each verse of his invocation his bonds became looser, till at last, when he had finished his prayer, his limbs were free from the fetters, and the fatal post lay upon the ground. With regard to the above story, it may be remarked 
that while the sacrifices of the Mexicans were only too sadly real, there are grounds for believing that the Sanskrit legend is allegorical. It bears a striking resemblance to the biblical account of Abraham being called upon to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and is probably a corruption of this. Well, why does it have to come from that, rather than the Isaac one coming from India? But anyway. Modified by long transmission from generation to generation, all knowledge of its hidden meaning having ultimately been lost. Indeed, the mythologies and legends of many of the older races bear unmistakable traces of the common origin of the latter at some far distant epoch from some unknown primeval stock. If the student of the living races of savages is constantly confronted with facts of the deepest interest as bearing upon the essential characters of humanity and the development of the human race, still more is this the case with the student of that new and imperfectly explored domain of science, the region of prehistoric archaeology. As the geologist from a single fragment of a bone or tooth reconstructs some huge and misshapen antediluvian monster, oh, must mean dinosaurs, so the archaeologist from an insignificant-looking piece of flint is enabled to reconstruct for us the habits, customs, and modes of life of ages long gone by. In its dim and shadowy outlines, the portrait of prehistoric man as we have it today is perhaps more fascinating and more romantic than if it were limbed with a firmer pencil and with colors more decided. At any rate, we know enough for the imagination to fill in, as it will, the blank places of the picture without much probability of error. Hmm. So he's admitting that this is probably a mostly romantic view, but he's saying more true than not true? That's what it sounds like. In some gravel pit, at St. Akul or Abbeville, the pick of the quarryman exhumes a tongue-shaped piece of flint on superficial observation very similar to the pebbles by which it is surrounded. Look closely at it, however, and you will be at once convinced that it has been chipped by the hand of man from out of a mass of the same material. Rough and rude as it is, and nothing could well be more rough and unsophisticated, it is nevertheless the product of infinite labor and craft. Of the beasts that perish, not one could fashion such an implement, and it is as much a symbol of the human intellect and of human superiority as the locomotive or rifled cannon of today. Nothing less complex than the human hand, guided in its work by the rational human soul, could manufacture one of the worked flints of the drift, and it is easy to convince oneself that even with modern appliances it requires considerable patience, skill, and practice to imitate successfully the rude workmanship of prehistoric man. I believe he's accurate there. I, from what I've read, it actually takes a lot of uh, training and skill for modern people to make, to, to, like, to chip out a flint arrowhead or knife of some kind with any kind of, you know, any, making it look like anything more than child's play. Um, to achieve the level of precision that they did in prehistoric times is actually pretty difficult and requires a lot of training, as I understand it. Okay, nothing, again, illustrates more strongly man's innate superiority hmm. arising from his spiritual endowments than the fact that, armed but with these wretched tools, he could victoriously cope with the hostile forces everywhere arrayed against him. Rude and degraded as compared with the cultivated races of the present, the flint worker of the Valley of the Psalm 
was nevertheless a man in all the essential characteristics implied by this name. Human resolution lit up his eyes, human reason controlled his acts, human love alleviated his pains and soothed his sorrows, and we have no reason to deny him, at any rate, so much of religious feeling as is implied in the custom of burying or burning his dead. In the pathless forests which surrounded him on every side roamed the mammoth, the woolly rhinoceros, the gigantic aurochs, uh, aurochs is an ancestor of modern cows, I believe, the gigantic aurochs, the lion, and the hyena. If he could not meet them in open combat, he was nevertheless able to hold his own successfully against them, and by stratagem or combination, he must often have succeeded in destroying them. With no protection against the inclemency of the seasons, save his natural fell of hair or the skins of wild beasts slain in the chase, he endured the biting frosts of winter and the burning sun of summer. Ignorant of the metals with no other weapon but his flint hatchet, he dug up roots for his subsistence or cut holes in the ice through which to fish, and if he could not overcome the forces of nature, he could at any rate defy them. It's interesting the way they portray that, as if it's like, oh, poor prehistoric man. But from what I've heard of people who kind of try to see what it's like to actually live this way, like experiment with that lifestyle, other than the benefits of modern medicine, which obviously you didn't have at the time, it really wasn't that bad uh, as a hunter-gatherer. Um, there was usually more than enough food if one thing ran out, there is usually something else that you could eat. And also, you know, wearing skins of animals sounds perhaps mm, like a crappy thing to wear. But I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think, you know, we're just talking like nicely tanned leather or even soft leather. You know, it, I, I, I could imagine it being a pretty comfortable thing to wear. All right. Let us turn again to another picture from the marvelous phantasmagoria of the past. <laughs> the time a little later, the scene the southern slopes of the Pyrenees, Pyrenees being mountains in Spain. On a platform in front of a small cave is a group of savages of diminutive stature clad in the skins of beasts. Some are sitting, some are standing, round a fire of glowing logs on which hiss pieces of bear's flesh. Beside them lies the body of one of their tribe, whose funeral obsequies they have met to celebrate in this fashion. After singing a rude death song, the corpse is taken up and deposited within the cave to take its place among the remains of many ancestors. Beside the body they lay the favorite flint hatchet of the dead, handy to his grasp when he may awake from the sleep of death and a leg of the great cave bear is given to him to serve as sustenance in his long and toilsome journey to the other world. These simple rites performed, they close the mouth of the cave with a slab of sandstone to protect the sacred dead within from the night-prowling hyena. Then, casting grief aside, they once more assemble round the embers and conclude the ceremony with a solemn feast. Such a scene, or one very like it, the sun must have shone upon many thousands of years ago near the little town of Orignac in the Haut-Garonne. Hmm, that sounds like French town. So the Pyrenees is actually, is actually between Spain and France, so um, maybe they're talking more on that side of the Pyrenees. One more scene, and we have done. 
Let us transport ourselves in imagination to one of the Swiss lakes and look at it as it must have been in the time of Relma, king of the Felatas. What? <laughs> Who is Relma, king of the Felatas? Oh, I'm looking forward to this. I don't know where he's getting this from. As now, the eternal mountains rise in rugged undulations from the lake shore, their summits whitened with perpetual snow, their bases clad in impenetrable woodland, and on the placid bosom of the lake swims the wild swan, and the stillness is broken but by the leaping lake trout or the whistle of the plover. Plover? It is daybreak, and the tired children of men are still asleep. As the sun looks over the shoulders of the mighty eastern hills, we see a sight that no man living will ever look upon except in dreams, in the shallow water near the shore, but separated from it by a hundred yards or more, is a vast platform of logs supported upon long and heavy piles driven into the mud. Upon this platform stands a populous village, composed of numerous buildings of wood, of strange and antique make, the dwelling of the chief being conspicuous by its greater size and more ponderous construction. From the sides of the platform dangle long lines of fishing nets in twisted festoons, with fish spears, rough baskets, and rude vessels of pottery scattered over its surface. In the still water between the platform and the shore floats idly a little fleet of canoes, hollowed out of trees by the aid of fire, and long wooden roads lead from the platform towards the land, which, however, they do not quite reach. Soon, as the light strengthens, the lake dwellers awake, and the scene becomes one of the utmost activity. Clothed in skins or in rough woven stuffs, the women light the fires and prepare the morning meal. Large, wolf-like dogs career over the platform in search of any stray morsel that they can pick up. The men throw out movable bridges by which they can reach the land and prepare themselves for the business of the day. Huh, so that's why it's said that they don't quite reach the land. It seems to be some kind of maybe defensive technique? I had never heard of that. I wonder if that's something that is evidence-based um, that he's working from. That's interesting. The men throw out movable bridges by which they can reach the land and prepare themselves for the business of the day. Some, with fishing nets and hooks of bronze, betake themselves to the canoes to provide fish for the community. Others, with bronze spears and hatchets, accompanied by their joyful dogs, land upon the shore and seek the mountains in search of the wild bull, the stag, or the wild boar. Why, however, should we go on, since the life of the lake villagers has been brought home to us in Realma? That's in italics, almost as if it's the name of some like the title of some poem or something. I'm not sure. Assuredly, no tale of fiction possesses more elements of interest and romance than is to be found in the hardly decipherable relics of the past represented in the Swiss lakes by half-rotten piles, broken bones, and scattered implements. Okay, now I have to Google this Realma. What is this? Realma. Let's see what Google tells me. Uh, Realma Google Books. There's a book from 1868 called Realma by the author of Friends in Council. That's all it says for the author's name uh, in two volumes, volume one. Huh. So it must be some work that was popular at the time. 
which described maybe the Swiss lake. All right. From these apparently discouraging and fragmentary materials, the skilled worker can reconstruct the past and can show us savage man, not as he is today, but as he was when history was not. <laughs> I like that turn of phrase. If we do not care to read the records thus presented to us, the fault is our own. And that is the end. That is the end right there. Oh, huh. It came up quickly. If we do not care to read the records thus presented to us, the fault is our own. Hmm. Well, all right then. So anyway, that was very interesting to me. Uh, what we saw there was, yeah, admittedly it was very racist, and it was very ethnocentric and colonialist and everything else, but also we kind of got an interesting peek into, um, you know, he was trying, in some points at least, to see what other cultures would have been like. One one thing I did find kind of interesting is like at the points where he did, talked about the savage man's habits as being he, he when he talked about him in a positive light it was usually European prehistoric peoples that he was talking about like when he was talking about the Pyrenees and the Swiss lakes um, those seemed to be cast in a much more favorable light than when he was talking about habits and practices from other parts of the world like for example the Aztecs from or Mexico. I, I didn't really get a positive or negative feel from the one from India, but in general I felt like the European ones were given a little more slack. So again, not surprising from 1873, but just interesting. Nevertheless, uh, I thought, you know, whoever this NAH was clearly was passionate about his subject and made an effort to do um, some solid research, what he had available to him at the time at least, and to present it in a way that was interesting. The quality of writing at this time always gets me, what is interesting to me, because he's used a lot of action, and he took very careful care with his words uh, to make them flowing and whatnot. And it's very different from the journalistic style of today, where it's just get in, get out, get your facts, because a reader is going to be onto Facebook in a moment. So, I don't know. It's just something really kind of interesting to look back on. It's a little peek into... Um, 19th century views of what our prehistoric ancestors would have been like. Well, anyway, that's what we got for you today. I hope you enjoyed it. This was Public Domain Theater 3000. Make sure to uh, come back and listen to us again next time. All right, we'll see you at the start of next month. I'm BT Newberg. You're listening to Dead Ideas. Mm -hmm.